Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Brainwaves. Hear the world differently. Tune in to 3CR Community Radio Wednesdays at 5pm for Brainwaves, Melbourne's drive-time radio show. Giving voice to people with mental illness. One in five have a mental illness, but five in five can enjoy this great program featuring heartwarming stories, great information and some laughs as well. Find us at 3CR. 855 on your AM dial. Sponsored by Mental Illness Fellowship of Victoria. Welcome listeners, this is Brainwaves on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital, or maybe you're listening online at 3cr.org.au. My name's Rose, and in the studio today we have a very special guest, Neil Cole, and I'm also joined by James. Stigma and discrimination against people who have experienced mental illness is deeply entrenched in our culture. Stigma robs those who live with mental ill health of opportunities others take for granted. This marginalisation can be seen across pay grades and professions. It prevents many from enjoying, contributing and engaging in our society. Today, Brainwaves is lucky enough to be joined once again by an individual who has faced stigma head-on and only grown stronger from it. Neil Cole has had a long and diverse career spanning many areas. After graduating from Melbourne University's law school, Neil established a legal service in Flemington to provide assistance to those living in nearby commission housing. After practising law for seven years, Neil moved into politics, serving as a member for Melbourne in the Legislative Assembly as Shadow Minister for Consumer Affairs and Shadow Attorney General in Joan Kerner's 1992 cabinet. In 1993, Neil received a formal diagnosis for bipolar disorder, which was leaked by political enemies in 1995. Despite a lack of support from some Labour Party members and damage to personal relationships, Neil spoke openly about his experiences and was re-elected triumphantly in 1996. Since leaving politics, Neil has worked as a... has continued work in consumer advocacy and written 12 plays many of which explore themes of mental illness. His first play won the Griffin Award for Playwriting in 1999 and in 2001 Neil was awarded the Centenary Medal for Service to Australian Society and Literature. In 2010, Neil published his first novel, Colonel Surrey's Insanity. Neil is also a member on the Advisory Council of Mental Health and is affiliated with Melbourne University's Florey Institute of Neuroscience. Once again, a massive thank you for Neil to, for joining us this afternoon and to James for being here to have a chat with Neil. Yeah, Cole, um, thanks for joining also, us. Also, welcome to Kiara as well. She's just in the studio. Hey, everyone. <laughs> uh, Neil, thanks for joining us today. Good to be here, James and Kiara. You've had a long and storied career and life, in fact, um, spanning from uh, legal community advocacy to the creative arts and, of course, your political career as well. That's right. I might rewind to the start. You were born in South Australia, is that correct? Yeah, I was born in Millicent, South Australia. My father was uh, a farm worker at that stage, a shearer. So even though I was born, in, I was only in the hospital. We were actually from another place called Tantanula. 
Right. So, um, yeah, and then my father joined the Air Force and then we moved to North Melbourne. And you were living in the commission housing in North Melbourne? We were, yeah. We mm. lived there for, from 10 till I was 16. Mm. Mm. After graduating law school, you first went to work into community legal advocacy in Flemington? Yeah, I set up the legal service at Flemington. Right. So I started work there in 1980-81 and set the legal service up and worked with people, mostly young people with problems, but also, you know, single mothers and wills and the usual one of the mill things was that an unusual thing at the time to to have a a legal service kind of dedicated to that sort of community well there are a lot there were a lot of community legal services for instance there was one at there was a Fitzroy legal service and there are others and they had funding that I just happened to plant myself down at Flemington legal service and got money from people and through legal aid up until it got sort of stopped, I wasn't allowed to do that anymore. And then we got funded um, over in from about 1983 on. We didn't get much money, next to nothing. But, um, yeah, it was a very important thing, very, very interesting way of going about things with uh, mm. trying to change the way we did things. So particularly cooperative enterprises on the high-rise estate. And that, yeah. What would you say drove you to work in that field to work with communities would you say there was something that in your upbringing kind of informed that for you yeah i i got into law school because i got the marks to do it and i think i got into law school because you know it was a status thing because i was from a working class background but i think i'd always was more prone to be a social worker you know i would have liked to have done that sort of type of work and i got sort of pushed into the the legal career Mm. and so when I finished my articles I went and worked down there and yeah I was on homeless groups and work with young young people is what I most wanted to do Mm. and uh and I did do it for many years working with people going to court for them and trying to change the the system in which we live which is a bit of a forlorn forlorn hope but nonetheless it was well well intentioned mm. and uh, so that's why I went and worked at Flemington and did what I did over the seven years it was pretty exciting at times it was sometimes it was pretty hard and unpleasant you know with drug addiction particularly with you know people dying from drug overdoses and dealing in a small community there's always something or Flemington, Kensington, and it was a very high uh, level of crime in those days. And most of the crime we dealt with was was stupid crime, it was mm. just street crime between police and the local lads. So we tried to change that. I think we did yeah. to a point. Did you find that work um, taxing at all? I, I know that there's a, a higher prevalence of, of mental illness in people that work in law in general, but that type of legal work would have been a little bit more um, exposing you to people in trauma? I don't don't know. I I think it wouldn't have mattered what I was doing. It was the annual event, usually in the winter, to collapse and become very depressed. (laughs) Mm. And nobody knew what it was. It was always an event, you know, broken off with a girlfriend or something else happened. So I had pretty traumatic times while I was working there. And in a way, there was a bit of flexibility. There wasn't quite the immediacy. There would have been another job. So over the years, it became stronger and stronger and stronger. These, these breakdowns, if you like, quite severe. In 1994, it was very severe. 
Um, I was quite dysfunctional and couldn't, nothing, you know, I used to get upset. I used to get upset when I'd, I'd be at court and I'd see a policeman, ex- not doing the wrong thing, uh, but escor- escorting a young kid to the cells that I used to just get this terrible sinking feeling it used to upset me so much and that that was just one thing you know then all the you know the the terrible things of lack of money and you know single mothers and the problems that they had although they tended to be survivors but I so there was a lot of things which impinged which made me very melancholically depressed and suicidal I think although I was never really suicidal, I was certainly very, very depressed. How did you um, how did you find getting time off for work for those reasons every well, year? <coughs> it really wasn't a problem because I was paid such little money, mm. but I didn't take that much time off. I, I used to, and I, what I did do was uh, um, I used to come out of it. I'd come out of it in the spring, mm. which was very bipolar, mm. and I'd be okay, and I'd be jumping around like a jack-in-a-box, and I'd have all these brilliant ideas, and everybody thinks I was recovered, it was only, and I was, and then I'd collapse again at Christmas. Mm. I used to have shocking depressions at Christmas and fall asleep all the time I was falling asleep. So over the years there, it, it was it was so, uh, signs of, of a bad personal illness and having no respite, no counsellors, no psychiatrists, nobody was able to pick it up, which was a problem back then, wouldn't happen today, I don't think. So that's what it meant. But but also I think my ideology, if I can use that term, was so hell-bent on the injustice of everything I saw. And I think that was magnified by the depression. When you're depressed, you look at things and you think, oh, my God, this is terrible. And I, I think that that informed me to work harder to try to change the system or to protest or the system and what, what was going on. So that um, you get that clarity in depression and then that energy when you're coming out of it to yeah, pull in. That was a big problem. It, was a big, it wasn't seen as a problem at the time, but it was a huge problem. Because if I'd have just stayed depressed all the time, we would have done something about it. But because I came out of it with such alacrity, Mm. um, the change of seasons was never good for me. But after that, and then for some reason, the Christmas from about 12th of December and earlier than that onwards, I would get very, very depressed and found it very, very hard to even make it to Christmas Day. I still do. Not as bad as I used to be, but... Um, I can't imagine a career that would have more personal pressure and would be more taxing on your mental health than working in politics. You won the pre-selection for mm. the city of Melbourne. Mm. How did you find coping with your mental illness during that time of your life, mm. especially in those years leading up to that election? Well, prior to medication, it was horrific. The the To be brutally honest, it was not a good profession for me. I was very, very committed to certain things and most people around you just want to keep government and they're not committed in the same way I was intellectually and ideologically. But I'm not wishing to be too self-righteous over it because there was a lot of good people. But the problem was the I was married then and then the, my son came and it, it became almost impossible to function properly even though I didn't realise it 
at the time and I took so many things that were happening very seriously. The worst thing for me was I was elected on the Saturday and come the Thursday I had to go down to the police station with some friends, people who are members of the party because their brother had been shot by the police. And that precipitated the Wall Street killings the next day and then a number of other killings after that. All the people who had been, if not my clients, people that I knew or was close to and of course that. And watching the way the government and the police responded to it, I never really recovered from that. I always thought that, you know, if you live in a society and people carry guns, police officers, you've got to be accountable. And ultimately they were made to be accountable. But, you know, I was surprised at the way the government at the time ran away from it and and certainly didn't do what I wanted them to do, which anybody would have accepted as being a pretty appropriate. So it was overbearing to my illness at the time. So again, I wasn't wasn't medicated. Hmm. Was there any dialogue in politics at the time around mental health and around mental illness in society? Labor government done an enormous amount, um, but it was most around deinstitutionalisation. Mm. They set up the uh, Mental Health Research Institute. It was a, it was a, it was an enlightenment. It was a new era in in looking at how you would treat people with mental illness. But it didn't take it any further than that. There was nothing like's happened now. Uh, it became. It was just. A, yeah, it was a good thing to deinstitutionalise, but the 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 area of mental health didn't get the priority that it really needed at the time, and I'm guilty of that too because I didn't know anything about it. Mm. I just I was while I was sick, I, I hadn't been diagnosed. I knew very little about it. Mm. Um, it was only when I became diagnosed that I suddenly, you know, you was uh, opened up a whole new vista to me. I was not aware when I was told I was manic depressive what manic depression was. And I also thought then I didn't want other people to go through what I had been through. So I'd been from 16 when I was first went to the doctor with severe depression right through to when I was 35 and first diagnosed I'd been through a terrible time with depression and mania. Because when you're manic, you do stupid things too, of course, or silly things. Uh, your libido's too high and there's problems there. Um, so all in all, it was a, that was the big change for me. That I And I didn't want other people to go through what I went. And that, I was a member of parliament, so you know, my whole life career was dependent on... I didn't care about telling people about my illness. I didn't think it was any big deal, but... You could see that uh, that was just the one issue that were overwhelmed my need to, and desire to prove and do. How did, how did you um, limit the damage when that information came out? I, I was in touch with a woman who had worked in Parliament very recently and she'd been um, in Parliament for 20 years with, with bipolar disorder and eventually had to take some time off and, and that information came out. She unfortunately lost her job, but um, you, you got through that. How, how did that come about? Just. Uh, mine was different, though. Mine was, though, I was the Member of Parliament. Uh, I went public about it when I was attacked, you know. Like, I was, I resigned on the Friday as Shadow Attorney General, and then I, all hell broke loose me getting questions about my illness. Uh, and I went public about him, which was a terrible thing to do for me, because mm, that was not, not because you're public, not because the public were against you, but I attacked the people who'd done it. 
and the people who I believed had had done it. And so it was a terrible feeling. I ended up in hospital for three weeks. Uh, I was at a very low ebb and I found it very, very hard to cope with. I suppose I wanted to get out of Parliament. I should have got out. I didn't. You stay on because you think, you know, in this sort of macho way, I'm not going to get the bastards to feed me. And I wanted to do the 1996 election and increase my vote, which I did. So even though we'd, it went badly in 92, I increased my vote. So nobody voted against me because of my mental illness. It was a huge statement. Uh, all over the world it was a huge mm. statement to say, well, a person who's a member of parliament can still be have a mental illness. And there's no reason why I couldn't. If I had been diagnosed mm. and treated before 1988... I think I don't think it would have been a problem, you know, nothing like what it is, what it was, was it was. But also there's the question of stigma and the fact that people would use that against you and coming out and saying, well, look, it's, it's true, so bloody what. They obviously don't understand the nature of the illness. And if you're medicated, as I was, um, and if you've got a bit of support and that, you know, you, you'll, you'll do all right. The problem with the Labor Party, but not just the Labor Party with politics, is if, you, if it was announced that you had cancer, mm. the first question that everybody would be asking is, who's going to get pre-selection? So as soon as it was announced out of mental illness, three people uh, put their hand up at a meeting to take my, my pre-selection Unbelievable. away. Unbelievable. Well, you know, this is the sort of terrible people you deal with and we, what we have to do is understand that, that that's the type of person that you have to encounter. So if you've got to encounter that and you can stay around for a while and fight the good fight, but in the end I lost pre-selection again because they knew I was vulnerable. I was very vulnerable because I always was vulnerable because I was sick and they knew that. And uh, Bronwyn Pike ran and won the pre-selection you know, through deals and it wasn't local support, it was all these deals. And there was no regard whatsoever for, you know, the fact of having a somebody, you know, who, who uh, was a member of parliament with a mental illness. It's a shame that more people can't have as much courage as you had in that situation. Nowadays, I know there's a lot of people neglecting to disclose in their workplace where they might receive more support. Um, and encouragement, but uh, yours is really a, a story I'm glad to get out there. Well, <clears throat> it was a tough one. It was a different from what most people would do, and I, I just thought at the time, look, you're not going to do this. This mm. is wrong. Mm. And for them to, for me to be asked, it was Neil Mitchell who rang me up and said, look, Neil, this is what they, I knew him. This is what they're saying. They're saying he got manic depression. I know, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> how Shock. did they know? It's true. <laughs> but I to, But see, this is the other thing. We talk about disclosure, and I haven't ever told anybody this before, but I just thought, I thought about it because I appear particularly self-righteous, but I'm not. One of the members of parliament, a national member of parliament's son, had died who had schizophrenia, took his own life. And I remember him talking in parliament and that, and, and I just, I'd been diagnosed for about 12 months. So he had a, a little room off parliament house, off the main part of parliament. So I went to see him and I said, John, you know, I wanted to tell you something. I said, look, I've got a mental illness myself. And the melancholia is so bad sometimes that you wouldn't really feel like you want to go on. And for your son, with that degree of disability, while we don't want it to happen, we could understand that he would feel 
um, a relief. And mm. it's a shocking thing to say, but mm. you know, I wanted to say to him that that's how severe. Now, now this was a grade one. I would think grade one politics. You don't go and tell your opposition that you've got a mental illness. But on the other hand, the bigger issue was that he'd lost his child, yeah. which no greater thing could happen, mm. and for me to make some contribution to that. The other time I did it was one of our own people decided that Jeff Kennett had something wrong with him and put some tablets, they were Tegretol, onto the, just put them on the, in between the, the, uh, the table where you sit. He's, he was the deputy leader at the time, put them on the table. You know, he's trying to say, oh, you're mad. So I went around to him afterwards and I said, look, you've, you've got it right. He said, I'm on them. I'm on that drug. And I said, you're, you're attributing a mental illness to this bloke's awful ideology. Like, it's the worst thing you can do. I don't have any time for Jeff Kennett. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't a mental illness of a problem. It was a terrible bloody ideology of privatising. So... You know, twice I just rejected the the stereotype of keeping it to yourself. But I told lots of people I didn't have any great... To me, it's just an illness like any other. You know, i got gout as well. Do I tell them <laughs> about that? And diabetes now. So, you know, you do that. Seems you recognise the, the, the healing that sharing your experience can bring pretty early on. And you've continued that in your work with consumer uh, advocacy? I've tried to. In my time working at the Howard Florey, and it, with J. Kilkarni down at the uh, the Alfred, I, I've seen. I'm dropping off now. I'm not. I'm not doing as many as I used to. But I was seeing, you know, heaps of people all the time. You know, five, ten, sometimes ten a week, where you you can sit down with them and you can assess what medication they're on. You can talk to them about their. You can say, look, I think you're on the correct course, or look, don't do this, or do do that, or can I help you write a play? So you there is so much you can do from a consumer perspective to help them, and I think uh, hopefully giving people people, you know, a bit of encouragement so they can look to me and say, well, geez, if, if he can do it, anybody can. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do have an amendment to make to my introduction. You've actually written 25 plays, is that correct? Yeah. I've written 25 and I've written the, uh, I've written a lot about mental illness and I've sort of got dropped off that topic. I've written about uh, one about autism. I've written about mental illness, uh, manic depression, uh, schizophrenia I've done I've done them all really of the mental illnesses and I've sort of stopped doing it now and then I've taken up these biographies so I wrote uh, one about Joan Baez last year and I've written one about Nina Simone which we did in Edinburgh which went really well we had big numbers there uh, it was incredible actually and we've got a producer who's going to take both Nina Simone and Sammy Davis Jr. on on tour over in uh, over in the UK and also I got asked by a guy named, well, Peter Strucker, who was the best friends of Freddie Mercury for 15 years. So I'm writing a play called Freddie Mercury and Me. Important thing about creativity, I, I think I'm probably exceptional, so not every person <laughs> with bipolar is going to be able to write that much. But, <clears throat> but there's no doubt there's a, a creative link mm. and it should be exploited and to enjoy yourself particularly. But what we found with our studies was with people with schizophrenia that they got an enormous amount out of being involved in the process of creativity, of mm. being involved in making a video or play or whatever. So that was the other work that I did. And uh, I write, I've written a lot of small plays for 
you know, people to perform. But the big ones, are, you know, the big time is over in the UK now. Although we're doing one, Billy Thorpe and Lee, next next May at the at the uh, the Alex Theatre, which is a new theatre in um, Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. Yeah, oh, fantastic. We'll have to get along and check it yeah, out. Yeah, everybody. I'll come back on Brainwaves and plug it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I certainly find that when I'm going through a, a period of psychic mm, conflict inside myself that, that engaging in some kind of creative activity, be it drawing or writing, um, really helps me release that. Was that ever part of the process for you when you were playwriting? Absolutely. And I think that uh, there's obviously some part of the brain, they say the prefrontal cortex, which deals with... Um, emotions and feelings, etc., which come out. What What's really crucial, I think, for everybody, not just me, is I've done lots of productions. We've done over 45 productions. Mm. But people say to me, oh, do you like the production? Do you like this? I said, I don't mind it, but I love the writing. Mm. The writing's the thing. I just love it. So I can sit down at a computer and just work away, calibrating things and getting it all done. And and I think for people with mental illness, um, writing's great if they can just get um, structure and learn how to write, not just go on blithely writing mm, things. Editing, yeah. But I, I've certainly gained a lot from, from the sheer enjoyment of writing things or when I see people and I help them write things and readjust it. Because I've done a lot of that over the last five years, particularly helping people with their writing. And sometimes we've done very successfully, sometimes it wasn't so good, but generally it's a, a great feeling, great experience and something that, uh, you know, people with mental illness should really try to exploit. And the lifestyle as well, have you found that is more suited to, to living with a mental illness? Oh, I don't know. I think sometimes, but you know, dealing as they say with actors, how do you how do you upset an actor? Give him a job. <laughs> so I, I think when you're dealing in human relationships, whether it's Parliament or or theatre, you, you've got this external pressure on you. But I I must say that that probably is nothing like the. The, the the parliament nature of it with the you know when I even within your local branches you've got to p- p- deal with you know two or three people just you know awful just really bad eggs so you don't quite have that with theatre well thank you so much for giving so much of yourself in all of your careers and for joining us today to tell us a little bit about it good to be here haven't done it for a while so I'm a bit rusty <laughs> no, you did fantastically. We're going to get you on more often. Um, that's probably about it from us here at Brainwaves. Um, join us next week at 5pm. Up next is Renegade Economists. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.